As the racing season winds down, the separation season begins. Now, when I say separation season, I don't mean the season to separate yourself from racing, although that's exactly what many of your competitors are doing. And that provides an opportunity for you to separate from the pack. Within This Is Bracket Racing Elite, we focus on growth year-round, but the gains, they're, they're small, they're incremental during race season for two reasons. Number one, because your attention as a racer is split, right? You've got upkeep, maintenance, travel, all the things involved with the racing season, in addition to a focus on your own growth. And because other racers are working hard at that time too. It's this time of year, this separation season, where putting in the work can really allow you a leg up on the competition. If you're serious about doing just that, and you'd like to surround yourself with a group of knowledgeable trainers and accountable peers with the tools, the resources, the wisdom to help you take that next step, and perhaps even with the occasional kick in the pants to keep you on track, this is Bracket Racing Elite is the answer. We've helped thousands of racers just like you take the next step toward becoming the best version of themselves on the racetrack. Elite can help you do the same. Enrollment is open as of Monday, November 27th, and it closes December 8th. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite. And it's all that we know, it's the way you're BTE builds products that you can depend on, whether it's a complete power glide transmission, a torque converter for your specific combination, or any related component or bolt-on item. The professionals at BTE and Memphis Performance have what you need to succeed. Shop online at bteracing.com. Today's episode is presented in part by ThisIsBracketRacing.com, host of the fourth annual ThisIsBracketRacing.com off-season practice tree challenge. Sign up for free at ThisIsBracketRacing.com slash practice. It's time for the big interview on the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast with Luke and Jed. All right, continuing on our ongoing quest here within the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast to sit down and catch up with each of the 2018 world champions, both within the NHRA Lupus Oil Series, within the IHRA Summit Super Series, and within the NHRA Summit ET Series. We are now joined by 2018 NHRA Super Comp World Champion. Mr. Steve Williams. Steve, thank you for uh, taking some time to join us here on the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast. Oh, absolutely, Luke. I, uh, you know me pretty well. I'm, I'm more than happy to join you. <laughs> Usually, <laughs> I'm listening to your interviews with whoever's the champion. So, you know, to finally get it done and get a chance to, you know, obviously, we've raced together for a while. You know, it's pretty special to get a chance to talk to you. Yeah, it's been a long time coming, without question. Been knocking on the door of this for several years. Take us back, I guess, to start things off, Steve, because your racing career spans a lot of decades, a wide range. As far back as you want to go, like, what are your earliest memories of the sport and, and getting started within it? I mean, even though I've raced, you know, I think in NHRA racing, 
I really got com- actually got competitive and started racing, I think, in, in 1990. But, you know, like everybody else in those days, I was not working for KNN. And, you know, it was always whatever you could do to get to the racetrack, you know, the local racetracks. And didn't really do a lot of bracket racing, but would just go and race different cars that I had built. And then the thing that was interesting is I had built this 62 Corvette and I went to uh, Bakersfield for the very first division race. And by just pure chance, the car ran 885 and it was a really competitive car and I entered it in super comp and you know i had my license and i just kind of took to it and i really enjoyed it i think it was a different type of racing that i hadn't done and fortunately the car was really consistent and you know that year we did pretty well and it was always for me it was really um something away from work where i could go and i could compete we could do it you know eight or nine times a year or you could do it more if you wanted to and so i I think you know having a chance to kind of get in super series was really just kind of in its heyday. 890 had just become a class a few years earlier. Super Gas had just started at Pomona. And, you know, I had watched the Super Gas guys when I was a teenager down at Orange County because I'm local here in Southern California. So all the original Super Gas racers, when they used to call it Pro Gas, we would go down and watch that. We'd go to the beach during the day and then we'd come back and watch Orange County, watch all these guys. And in those days, they ran 980s, you know. So I think you had the combination of I got lucky and had a car that ran close to 890. And then at the same time, I had watched all these guys race pro gas and it looked like it was a lot of fun. And so once I got a chance to do it with a car that I had built, you know, it just all kind of snowballed from there. What was your introduction into hot riding in general? Like, I know that was part of the culture in Southern California, but what was like, do you have a first, you know, memory or experience is really getting interested? And this won't shock you. But uh, I have three sisters, and my oldest sister was, uh, I don't remember his last name, but his first name was Dusty, (laughs) and he had a Mopar. (laughs) And I begged them to take me, believe it or not, to Lions. And my sister, she's about 10 years older than I am. So as like a 9, 10-year-old, they took me down to Long Beach, and he actually had it was some kind of a Mopar, like an early, like a Ram Charger style, you know, and I'm not sure if it was a Belvedere, it might've been a Belvedere. So I'm in this noisy car with my, in the back seat, of course, with my oldest sister and, and Dusty. <laughs> and uh, we go to Lions. And I mean, I, I think that's actually, I was just hooked from there on. I, I mean, it was the spectacle and the sound. And I mean, I'd, I mean, I'd never seen anything like it. And so when we came back home in, in our town, there were three gas stations and the one gas station, of course, now I'm going to age myself at 63, but it used to be Atlantic Richfield. Now it's Arco, right? At that Richfield station, those were the Mopar guys. And then there was a mobile station and they were all the Chevy guys. And then an Exxon station were all the Ford guys. And all these guys raced in Southern California. They either went to Fontana, Orange County, Irwindale. And in those days actually had Colton drag strip, so there was four or five drag strips around, and these guys, they would, I mean, their whole goal was to beat the other camps with these gas stations. So when we were still riding bicycles, there were two or three of us that would go around, and we'd beg these guys to let us polish their cars and clean their wheels and hang out. And once in a while, they'd take us to Orange County or Irwindale when we were like 13, 14. So that, I mean, really, it was a culture of drag racing and it was just by luck it happened to be in my town uh you know right where i lived and, and that's actually i think where it all came from because my dad was a businessman he 
worked for Sibagaygi. I mean, he had, I mean, to him, a car was something you put a key in and it drove you to work. That was it. The 2018 season obviously has to go down as a highlight, if not the highlight of your racing career, you know, crowning it with the world championship. You've been close before on numerous occasions, a number of top 10 finishes, several times coming right down to the wire at the end of the season. Just for our listeners, what would you have considered, whether it was points finish or, or just the feeling of being close, what was your nearest miss to the championship prior to 18? I mean, I don't think I've actually told the 03 story, and that's the year Stinnett won. I mean, that's the year Beckman won. And it was the same. It all came down to Vegas. In fact, both Beckman and I, and I think it was Anthony Castillo, it was really Castillo, Beckman, and myself. We all had mathematical chances, but we had to get to the final or close to the final. And it's a great story because Stinnett had come out because he was already claimed out. And, um, and I actually had one of the better chances. I think Beckman had to do really well at both Vegas and Pomona. And Anthony and I, I think, I think Anthony had to go to the fifth or sixth round, and I think I had to go to the final. And the way the ladder lined up, I dropped on the opposite side from Anthony, but Beckman was on my side. And we were racing in the fourth round, and one of the gears in the dry sump pump, it shattered and locked up the dry sump pump, but my guy went red. And so I won that round, but it snapped the dry sump belt. And, of course, you're round robbing. It's still eight-round race in Vegas. And we see the pump seized up, so we – you know, we ripped the pump off. I've got Ferd. I've got five other guys. We're all got this pump apart in my trailer. We're grinding the gear that's broken just so I can idle. You know, we figure to get it all back together. And we're, I'm racing a guy, and the next round, it would have been me and Beckman. And when I did the burnout, I backed up as soon as we left the line about 200 feet. And I've got him by about 40 off the tree. And the motor just starts to tie itself up, right? And so he goes on and gets to race back, Jack. Now, I'm not saying I would have beat Jack, but that was one of the more closer ones because Jack and I had raced for years. And back then, you know, that's all he did was Super Series race. And, you know, we'd gone back and forth. It would have been nice to have not lost that way. And that one really left kind of a stinger. And then in 16, you know, I started the year really strong nationally, went to three finals in a row, you know, one Pomona, and broke a rocker arm in the final at, at Phoenix. And then in Vegas, just fell out of the car against uh, Fletcher and still bothers me. I gave him his first super comp. I don't want to be that, that guy. <laughs> but he you know, had a really strong start. And then we got down to the end of the year and we had rained out Vegas. That was 16. And I think Austin was leading. And then I think Nick Folk won in Reynolds, right? Came Reynolds, out of, yeah, kind exactly. of came out of nowhere, had to win the he race. Came right. out of nowhere. And I mean, he had a great year. I mean, I think he almost doubled up at, at Kansas that year. I know you were close too. I think you were like in the mix somewhere close. And so we had these two points races and mathematically, you know, I had to, I think semi, semi or, you know, win and go to like the fifth or sixth round. And you know what? I, I drove a great division race. I ended up winning the first division race. So now I'm staring down, you know what? I think I had to win five rounds and, you know, I had a good first round, and I think it was second round or third round. We ran late at night. It was like 9 o'clock, and I'm racing a black dragster, and it's got no decals on it. And, you know, in your mind, I'm just – I'm locked in. I'd already won the division race before. I'm driving well. You know, and I got down there, and when I got to my spot, something inside me is like, don't lose it by hogging it up. And I just kind of tried to tighten it up, and I get tooth out behind. 
And, and I think that's the one that probably, and I'm not saying I would have won the next round or the next round and passed Nick, but you know, you want somebody to beat you. You don't want to make that mistake. And, you know, and of course it turns out we're both above by like three. I didn't have to make it that tight. And so that's the one really, I think Luke that stung the most, you know, is I just wanted to get beat. I didn't want to lose by doing something that, you know, normally I wouldn't have done. And we all give it back. That's not my point. But in that situation, I think I'd have rather lost by taking 11 thou when I had to take nine or whatever than giving it back. With the uh, perspective of hindsight now from atop the mountain, how did those experiences kind of prepare you for this title run in 2018? You know, I think um, I did not start the year very strong. This last year in 18 was a difficult year business-wise just for me personally. I was kind of being pulled different directions in business. So I think at the beginning of the year, maybe I didn't have the focus I usually have as far as racing. You know, I was kind of going through the motions. And then we had a little bit of a break there for about a month and a half. And, you know, when we got to to Sonoma, you know, I did well at, at the national divisional. You know, we won the divisional. And then I go to Seattle and we run her up. And then it's right back. I couldn't go to Indy. And so I kind of put everything down. But I was kind of looking at the points and and honestly, there was a lot of people, they're all kind of stacked up in one spot. And it's like, well, you know, if you got on a little bit of a run here, legitimately, I was thinking just I'd get myself in the top 10. You know, we did pretty well. Great Ben had a double and we did okay up there and then kind of got on a roll. And, you know, we came out of, uh, honestly, one of the more pivotal races. I'm racing uh, Austin, who's always tough. He and I, whenever I kind of go back somehow, when I'm in Oklahoma or Dallas or you know, I'm either going to run into Austin or you or Stennett or somebody, you know, you know, it's going to happen. And so he and I run, I think in the fifth round for a buy into the final. And I think that's the point at which I, you know, once I got by him and had the buy, even though I didn't win the Dallas national, I knew those points were good enough to put me in a position. And honestly, I felt like, I mean, I had a full claimer at the national event and I had a full claimer at that eight round division race. And I'd been close before, and then, you know, you got your friends like, you know, Stinnett's calling me going, quit messing around and get it done. You can do it. And, you know, to, you know how Tommy is, you know, he's calling me up and he's like giving me a hard time, which he always does. And, and I think two things that helped this year, the people like Ferd that have done this for a while and your friends that they respect you. I think that their confidence that they, they felt like if I drove the way I could drive, I could get there. I think that was one thing. And then the second was that division race, that last division race, I always have a good feeling when I go into that race. And I'm not saying I win it all the time, but for some reason, it's at the end of the year, you've got everybody from every division. You got probably one of the tougher division races to win. And I don't know, it's just, I mean, it's a little bit like the playoff game. It's not a regular season game. It's kind of like everything's on the line. And usually by then, work's all done. We're at the end of the year. SEMA's already over. All the trade shows are gone, except PRI. So I don't really have a lot of business clutter. It's really just focus on that race. I think that's probably a long explanation, but that's probably the best I can give you. Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. As you mentioned, your season didn't get off to a hot start. I think between Pomona and the two Vegas races, you had like one win light. And then, well, sorry, I didn't mean no, that no, way that it came off. No, I, mean, I can laugh about it now. It wasn't too funny when it happened. Sure, sure. <laughs> then, uh, as you said, you really start to gain some momentum along the Western Swing between the Sonoma Points Meet and the Seattle National event, right? Win and runner-up. 
it, was it then or, or even was that even too early? Like, was there a point at the season when you said, you know, and it, to your point, the super comp points chase last year seemed more muddled than in recent years. You know what I mean? Somebody had to break out of it, uh, at least during the middle of the season. Was there a point where you said, kind of stepped back and said, wow, this might actually be the year that this could happen? Yeah, I think that coming out of Dallas and then being in the top 10 and then knowing I had those two races to claim. Now, I mean, I lost to Mark Graham in the fourth round. I missed the tree, and I think, I think he had me by 12 or 14 on the tree. And I ran dead zero on the brakes, and he got by me by 3,000. And, you know, that was my fault. You know, I was probably delayed up a little bit too much. It was at night. It was dark. I'm telling myself I'm not giving this up We're going red. So I probably had about 10 too much in the box. If I think if I get by that round, I'm racing Kevin Wright and, you know, and who knows what happens from there. But I do think that coming out of Dallas, that's when I really felt like I had a shot, but a lot of things are going to have to happen. And I've had, I mean, the car, the current car that I was driving, the, the TNT car, it's a good car. But I, you know, I mean, you know, you, you get new cars off and on like I do. It's certainly not been my best car. You know, this car had a personality that was different. I think my TNT car before that was a better car. And this car's personality, the DNA in the car, it would show up at the worst possible time. And it's like every seven or eight rounds, something strange. And I've chased it for a long time. And so the, the way you have to drive this car is a little bit different than I normally. So normally I would, you know, maybe be more of like, setting up 87 87 5 and this car yet set up more like 85 sometimes so so i think those two combinations of i think i can get it done but since i'm driving a little bit different holding a little more than i normally hold i'm having to pay way more attention and i can't really trust the car so from round to round kind of changed my driving this last year a little bit and i actually think that helped because it was really more just win the next round and don't think about anything else. And, and extra close because, as you know, if you've got a car that tends to wander at the worst possible time, it's unsettling because, you know, you're thinking because we all know that we just have to know where we are. We don't have to know for sure, but we have to know within, you know, five or six thou. Otherwise, you know, when you're off by a hundred and a half, you can look really stupid. <laughs> without question, without question. It's interesting that you referenced that. I've stupid a lot of times. <laughs> you referenced the, maybe the slight diminishment or, or lack of confidence when you're not as confident in your car, but the flip side of that is like it, it kind of makes you pay more attention and, and do things that maybe yeah. feels like it's outside of your comfort zone, but in yep. the end, you're probably up on the wheel, so to speak, a little bit more than normal. Yeah. What um, you referenced that the matchup with Austin Williams that was in the quarterfinals at Dallas, correct? As, yep. Yep. as one of the key rounds of the season. When you look back at the year, it's easy for us to look back and say, well, obviously the closing divisional event at Vegas was what told the tale. Dallas was big too. Could you pinpoint one specific event as, I don't know if the turning point or the decision maker or the, the big accomplishment of the season? If you look at who I raced in the division race. <laughs> I've got the list here. I was going to get to that. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm just saying, I mean, look at, and, and, and let's just be honest here, because you know a lot of those guys. There's a few of them there that the guys we all race with, if they have to put five grand on a, on a race, and I'm racing Kevin or some of these, 
they're probably not going to bet on me. They may, some of them, but I'm just saying it wasn't like I had one. It was like a series. And I think the same thing with Austin, which is there are times where you look at it and if you get seven or eight thou on the tree, that doesn't normally happen. But if you get 10 or 12, it changes the race and it gives you an opportunity. And I think I was fortunate in a couple of those races to get that. Honestly, the division race, because I was so busy in the Corvette, my Corvette is actually a better car than my dragster. And I haven't driven that car because a lot of times when I get in that Corvette, I'm still angry at what happened in the dragster. And so, it, and I know you would know this and understand. And so would a lot of your listeners. So I haven't driven my Corvette as good as I can because a lot of times I'm not in the best of moods. Well, at that race, for whatever reason, both cars were good. And so I didn't actually know what round I needed to go to, to take the lead. I just knew I needed to win the next round. And the hardest part about that race was, and when I think back, I don't usually have a lot of regrets, but I do feel like I had such a good opportunity in the dragster that probably in the fifth round, even though I wanted to double up in both cars, because nobody ever wants to get out of a winning round. I think it actually interfered because there was nothing left. And literally, I couldn't even put my numbers in the computer. I mean, I'm literally just, I got the, you know, my thousand foot written on my time slip. I double check it. I'm getting out of the Corvette and literally getting right in the dragster. So when that happens, your just instincts are taken over. And then, you know, I just, in the, in the semis in the, in the Corvette, I just lost focus and, you know, I got beat and then that affected the Corvette because now once again, I'm going into the final in the Corvette and I'm angry because I got beat in the dragster and then I didn't drive. I mean, I followed him through in the, in the final in the Corvette. It's like, I mean, all I have to do is whisper on the brake pedal. You know, I think it was, I think I was out by five thou, he was out by three and I don't ever do that. And, but I'm so angry because of what I did in the dragster and I know all your listeners and everybody that races understands the emotions get really high when you do something that you know you're better than that. And so I think it just carried over. So that's the best way I can explain. <laughs> yeah, no, to your point, like that Vegas points me, going rounds in both cars and then combine that with the points implications and the pressure and the emotion. I remember texting with you that night and, you know, congrats, Steve, way to, way to go, yeah. something like that. And the text I got back was, I'm wore out, man. Like, <laughs> it's just draining. It is. I always like within these interviews to, uh, to kind of key on drama down the stretch in the championship yeah. run. And this season, nobody had more drama than oh you. Oh, my God. On your end, the fun part, I would assume, was Vegas. And to your point, uh, you had to win the fifth round to take the lead at the Vegas yeah. points meet. The lead from Don Nichols, who was there and still had Pomona yet to claim. And as you alluded to earlier, like you wake up Sunday morning, you're going into third round and you think, okay, this could happen. And then when right. you look at the ladder standing in your way, potentially, and this is the way that it shook down, it's Bill Dennis, the very accomplished mm -hmm. racer out of Division 4. It's Jeremy Deemers, a perennial top 10 finisher, and ultimately Kevin Brannon, former world right. champion. And not only to go through that murderer's row, so to speak, but the manner in which you did it. Like against Bill Dennis, you're 009, take 006. Against Deemers, you're 005, take, or 005 to go 906. 
against KB, you're 12, take five. And in the round that ultimately wins you the world championship at the time, it was just enough to give you the lead. And then yeah. you advanced, like the next round was Jason Kenny. It's not like it got any easier. You know, at that point, you're 003, 906. Like, I know it's easy to sit back and say, well, that's 30 years of experience coming out at the right time. But can you attribute that performance under that pressure to anything specific? I think different people call it that zone. At, at that point, I knew I was driving well. It was really just about do the right burnout, make sure and stage careful. Because, I mean, I was set, and I don't normally do this, but I mean, on those guys, I was set up 05. And when you're set up like that, you can't get in at all. You have to be in the exact spot you want to be in. So I think what happened there, the one thing I did is just really stage the way I wanted to stage every round. And honestly, in the semis, I didn't stage the way I wanted to stage because there was a little bit of a relief set in. You know, when I got past Jason, I knew I had the lead and you don't ever want to let your guard down. And I just got a red light in the super gas car. And honestly, I was tired. I mean, I probably wasn't drinking as much water as I normally should because, you know, I never even took my jacket off the last two and a half hours of racing. I think all of those things combined, but what it was was that zone. You know, it's no different, I think, than any other sport where you don't recognize anything. You almost don't see who you're racing. It's basically make sure you're in that right spot. And it's right in the sweet spot because you know that when you stage right and you know you're right where you're supposed to be, there's a certain you, – you become relaxed because you know you're not a little too deep or, you know, you're right where you need to be. And it gives you a different feeling. I think that – and then, I mean, to your point, this is where I think I feel like I earned it because raced Austin and Dallas and, of course, no, no disrespect to all the other guys, but raced Kevin on a tight race. I mean, they're two of the last three world champions, you know, and so you feel like, yeah, was there some luck involved? There always is. It doesn't matter, you know, in my case, most of the, the drama or the luck happened the next weekend at Pomona, <laughs> which took like five years off my life. <laughs> I can only imagine. You come off of that high at the Vegas Points Meet knowing that you did what you needed to do to take the lead. But it's not over. And you go into Pomona, and at that point, if I remember correctly, it was Don Nichols and Mark Graham both had a, a chance to knock you off that perch and, and claim the world championship. Nichols yeah. actually had the better shot. I believe he had to win round three. Yeah. Fell in round two, so he was two win lights away. Graham, meanwhile, had to make it to the final round, which seems so far-fetched coming in, right? It's one race on the yeah. biggest stage, and you've got to make the final round. And then the next thing you know, it's Sunday afternoon. He's down to whatever it is, five or six cars, and sitting on the bottom of the final. What, what was that like? I, and I know what this is like because I've been there, but what is that <laughs> like to sit in the bleachers or wherever it is and, and watch this take place knowing that you can't do anything about it? Yeah, I, well, I mean, there was a there was some some inside drama there that probably most people didn't see because of the way the race kind of stretched out. So they didn't even run the rounds when they were supposed to. And interestingly enough, I knew that Mark had the tiebreaker because he had beaten me in Vegas. And so you know, the first tiebreakers head to head, right? And so had I won the semi, got to the final, he would have had to win the race to win. And so I think. That probably added to the drama 
was because you're still thinking about why didn't I close that race? Yeah, what could I have done, right? Uh, yeah, what could I have done? So then you, when we got there, I knew both those guys. I've known them because I'd just been at Great Bend. And so I'd, I'd been racing with them there at a double points race. And, and you know, I got, and of course, I know I used to go to, to Kansas all the time to the, the points race on the way to Indy. So, you know, I knew Mark from them and, you know, good guys. But neither one of them had been to Pomona. And you know Pomona, for people that haven't been there, it's not an easy racetrack to show up and have to very first time win the race. Ask me, I, how long did I try to win that race? <laughs> Let's not talk about that. But it's got a, a tricky starting line. There's, it has a tendency to go wicked red at the worst possible times. So I'm actually kind of feeling like they're going to have to drive pretty well. But you're right, Don had the best opportunity. Well, on the very first time run, you know, there's always that uneasiness and they're both at the back and, you know, normally I run at the back. So, I mean, I just walked over and, you know, shook both their hands and said, hey, you know what, no matter what happens here, good luck to you guys. By the way, that shutdown area is a little tight, so make sure to get on the brakes because it is. I mean, you got to get on the brakes fast, right? Pomona is not the longest track on the tour. For no, sure. it is not. And so, I mean, you know, it was kind of, I think Don probably, I don't know him as well as Mark, maybe a little surprised, but it's like, and, you know, and I really honestly, I know a lot of guys have different theories on this. You probably have your own, but I did not plan on trying to chase either one of them down. But I know that both of them like to run at the back. And so I'm like, look, I'm going to do what I normally do. I'm going to run towards the back. And if by chance they're there still, I'm not going to try to avoid them, but I'm not going to follow them down. I go, I'm just going to, I'm going to try to just win first round and get myself on the ladder and hopefully fate works out. And then by strange coincidence, you know, I come around the corner to the back and both Don and another guy, and in this case happened to be Tony Helms, they both have green cars, right? And both of them are right in front of me when I pull up right or left, right? Normally, I, you know, I'll take the left lane, but sometimes I'll take the right depending on what the car's doing. And I'd already made my decision. I'd take the right lane. So when I pull up, I'm one car off. I'm behind Don, and I'm one car off of Tony. That's how, that's how first round goes, right? And I don't know Tony, but I think it's Don because they're both green cars, right? So the way it all lines up, it moves forward, and I end up racing Tony. And, I mean, he just just packaged me out. And be honest with you, my, my concentration probably wasn't there. The race that I think people forget is then second round, Tanner Theobald. I mean, I, th- I don't know what. I think he might have had like a, a nine or ten thou package. and. And, you know, and Don, he was close, but, I mean, he wasn't going to get around him. I actually think that's probably as big or not bigger than, you know, what happened later in the round with Tony. So then we fast forward, and, of course, now you're like, you look at the ladder, and by pure chance, Mark's got the buy into the final. <laughs> you're like, well, that just is a big relief because, man, if you get to that point, now it's just you got to win the fifth round. Sure. You, don't have to, you don't have to make the final. And so, you know, and it's hard because, you know, I felt like that nobody would talk to you because they know what it means. And so you're kind of like everybody, you don't want to jinx you. And so they're kind of like, even your normal friends are kind of not calling you now. And, and we would go up to the fence. I chose to go to the finish line just because I wanted to kind of see what happened. And, you know, and honestly, Mark was driving well. You could tell that he was getting on a roll. You know, his car is pretty similar to my car in terms of 60 foot, runs about the same speed. And so... He was driving really well. And honestly, I mean, there was a point at about the end of the fourth round, I'm like, you know what? Looks like I'm going to be hanging a two on the car, you know, because he was driving that well. And then I think probably the, for me, the emotions of 
having to go to bed at night two times in a row. And then Saturday night, I am glad that they didn't run that round Saturday night because Pomona is not fun at night. And I didn't want it to be decided on one guy can't get down the racetrack. And I've had that happen. And so I was actually, even though it has another sleepless tossing and turning because they didn't race till Sunday afternoon, I would have rather had to wait another day, win or lose, than have one of them not be able to get down the track. And then so we're at the finish line, and I think the coolest part was, you know, I feel bad. I don't want to pull for anybody to lose, but, you know, when Tony Swinlight came on and Janet Turns gives me a big hug and we know we've won the world championship, just as I'm, all that relief is coming out, the stands at the end there, you know, that's kind of the racer stands, and all the guys that I've raced with, Chad Langdon, Rick Beckstrom, Larry Scarth, and I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Kevin Drew, I mean, literally, one by one, they're coming out of the stands, which is really impromptu. I think they're all relieved, and so the next thing you know, there's like 35 or 40 of the guys I've raced with for 20 years, and they're all kind of like celebrating but they're all just they realize that something that was really important to me finally happened and I wanted it was just made it a little extra special whereas if I was on the starting line yeah we would have high-fived and left off you know and you know and then I actually later on got to go and meet Tony Helms and I mean I'm his biggest fan now you know I mean the guy I was really and not to root against the guy that won in the final Weber because he's a really his family they're good people and great racers come out of juniors but it did seem kind of fitting that he would win the race. So I was kind of hoping, you know, he'd get his first national event, but yeah, I mean, what a weekend. I, I, I mean, if that's what it takes to win a championship, I guess I will, how does that, how do they say endeavor to persevere? <laughs> <laughs> how ironic too. I didn't realize yeah, that, that Tony Helms ends your weekend and ends up, you know, kind of making your year all in a few days time. Right. That is unbelievable. (laughs) (laughs) What I try to harp on too in these interviews, because I just don't think until you have lived a title chase that the the average, say, bracket racer, even sportsman racer to some extent, realizes the hardships and the logistics that go into chasing a title. This particular season took you on the road late in the year. Like you really made most of your hay from really October on with the trip to Great Bend and then to Dallas and then finishing out Vegas and Pomona. Was that trip like part of your original plan in the season or was that just something that got added in because you felt like you had a shot in, in points? Yeah, it, it was not part of the trip. When I could not go to, you know, I like to go to Indy every year. I mean, it's one of those things where, you know, I've gotten to the semis a few times and I feel like I've, I've had an opportunity to win that race and I want to win it. And then I couldn't go this year. And of course, you know, as you get older, every time you can't go, it's kind of disappointing because, you know, we don't know how long our careers can go. And I still plan on racing for a while, but you feel like if you miss a year, you just missed an opportunity. And then when they rained out Earlville and they jammed all of that together and had a double points race, that's when I planned it and just said, look, I'm going to go to Dallas anyway. I enjoy racing in Dallas. And so we ended up basically planning it that way. But I, I mean, you know, it's funny because, a lot of times, and you know this, Luke, you're such a great racer. I think your losses, those heartbreaking losses, I think they actually teach you what you need to, to be able to do to finally close the deal, whether it's a division race or a national band or a championship. When you're down to three cars at Indy and you don't stage the way you want to stage or something happens and then you have to drive all the way home 
and your mind is just, you know, you're beating yourself up. Those actually, I think they toughen you up so that when you get in those later rounds and all of that, I wouldn't call them racing scars, but they leave a mark, you know, and because I'll guarantee you, if I asked you some of the races through the years, you can point to the exact race that you know that you should have won. That would have been either won you another national or won you a national, you know, a title or whatever. They almost are more ingrained in your in your mind than your wins. And because, um, I mean, you know, we all want to win. And don't get me wrong, I enjoy winning just like the next guy. But the ones that really sting and the ones you bring up, like when we get together and we're chatting and talking, Tommy and you or me or Stint, whatever, because Stint and I are great friends, we're always talking about the one that we gave back or the one that we went red when we knew we shouldn't have taken five. <laughs> you know, nobody's ever talking about, oh, how you won this race, you know, so. I think it's, I think that's what actually prepares you to probably finally get that, like you said, make that journey, you know. Sure. I'll kind of wrap this, uh, this thing up, Steve. I know that, and you know that while it's the individual that gets all of the accolades at the end, this is far from an individual sport for most of us. So I want to give you this platform and this opportunity to recognize the, the people that have, that have helped you make this season what it is and, and be such a instrumental part of your life and your racing team? Yeah, I, I mean, obviously, first and foremost, I couldn't do it without K&N. You know, it's been a 23, 24-year career. You know, it was a family-run business. I'm lucky that I had two careers after owning my own businesses. I got to come to work here. Jerry Mall, the owner of K&N, when he owned the company, when I came here, he wanted me to keep racing. Uh, it was a big part of who I was as a person. So I think K&N's investment in the sportsmen and grassroots, I mean, the reason it's there is because of their commitment to all different types of grassroots racing. We build products for that. So first and foremost, I couldn't do it without the company. Tom McGann, our CEO, you know, he's a former uh, top sportsman racer. I mean, he knows the sport. And, you know, when he came in a couple of years ago, when, when we went from uh, family ownership to private ownership and having, uh, you know, financial business partners. Tom came in and he's like, Williams, we want you to keep doing what you're doing. And uh, you can't do this sport without financial support or you either create it yourself or someone gives it to you or they realize that it's important. And, and so I think foremost, those things, my wife and daughter, and you know this better than anybody. And so do your family. I mean, this sport takes time away from your family. I mean, even though I take them with me, the fact that my wife has always invested in allowing me to, to live my dream and support my dream, that's just number one. I mean, when you get a life partner that can support you and what your passion is, and then now my daughter, I mean, we were talking earlier before we started the interview. I mean, I'm thrilled. My daughter wants to race a stock eliminator car, and she's done juniors, and she's good. And so, you know, it actually makes it easier for me because as my career winds down, you know, hers is just getting started. And then Travis Hodges that drives my truck and trailer and crew chief. I mean, I brought him on about, I think it's now 11 years ago. And he pays attention to all those details and the intangibles. I mean, you know what it's like. I, I mean, I couldn't have done what I did in Vegas, even though I didn't win the race. I couldn't have done it without a guy like Travis. John Reedy, that he and I have been friends for 35 years. We built motors together. It's mostly him. Uh, learned more from him. Engine building, you know. Most people probably don't know, but we do all our own stuff. It's just been a lifelong friendship. And, and then, you know, last of all, 
friends like yourself and Tommy Phillips and Mike Furterer and, and Gary Stinnett. I mean, I've told this story. I think it was in National Dragster, but, you know, Stinnett called me in between rounds. And when you have that level of support, when you got those kinds of friends, you know, I'm a pretty lucky guy. I think I'm living the dream. Yeah, without question. Before I let you off the hook, we typically uh, close out these interviews with a little bit of uh, just fun rapid fire, quick in yeah. and out, uh, typical one word answers typically and uh, not necessarily racing related. So you up for a little bit of that? <laughs> okay. All right. Most yeah, yeah, you should be. Most embarrassing thing that uh, Steve Williams did as a kid. Oh my gosh. I think, um, I know this sounds crazy, but but uh, I was only 12 or 13 years old and I stepped into an elevator that someone else left the elevator with some gaseous type nausea in the elevator. And the very next floor, four nurses got on the elevator and they accused me of it. And uh, I was just <laughs> absolutely the innocent party. And uh, I remember that embarrassment at 12 and, uh, you know, next to, next to running to a fire, where a car was on fire when I was 17, only to slip and fall, and then get back up and pull the trigger on a fire extinguisher with about 50 people around where there was no fluid in the extinguisher. <laughs> <laughs> uh, favorite race car of all time, whether it's one of yours or uh, a different one? Oh, I think, you know, my number one favorite race car would be any car that Dale Earnhardt drove. I was a big Dale fan. I thought, you know, it was... He was an incredible driver and just such a you know an icon. And then my personal favorite car is um, is my '62 Corvette. In fact, I'm actually kind of semi getting it ready again to bring it out and race it once in a while, just because I really. It's the first race car I built with a guy named Scotty, and um, he and I built it in a 20 by 20 square foot garage, so it's got a special place in my heart. Yeah, that's always cool stuff. A little off the wall. What color is your toothbrush? My toothbrush is purple. All right, all right. Most people can't even remember. Sunrise or sunset? Oh, definitely sunset, yeah. And if you could add one person to Mount Rushmore, who would it be? Wow, that is um, – it probably doesn't mean anything to anybody else, but I, it would probably be my grandfather. My dad passed away at an early age uh, uh, when I was very young, and so my mom raised three girls and myself, who I was not the easiest child to raise, and my grandfather – actually worked for Henry Ford. Uh, his name was Peter Vucin. And he was an immigrant from Yugoslavia. He worked in the crankshaft and the engine foundry for Henry Ford, and then became a tool and die maker. Well, he was retired. And so he actually kind of raised me. So for me, like, let's just call it the Steve Williams Mount Rushmore. It would definitely have my grandfather's face. Oh, good stuff, man. What a way to close it. Again, man, thank you for your time today. I know how, uh, how busy a guy you are and how valuable this time is. Appreciate you sharing it here with us uh, on the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast. Thanks again, Luke, and uh, great new year coming, so happy year. I want to thank everybody for tuning in. To make sure that you're the first to know when next week's episode is available, subscribe. And you can do that on Google Play. You can do that on iTunes. You can do that wherever you are accessing our show today. Just subscribe. That way that you know that you have got the latest edition of the podcast. You'll be the first to know. And do us a favor. Tell your friends about the podcast. Get your track involved by broadcasting portions of the Sportsman Drag Racing podcast over the PA on race day.
Jed and I are proud to partner with Bill Taylor Enterprises. That's BTE here within the podcast. Neither of us, Jed or myself, are strangers to BTE products, services, or customer service. I've personally been using BTE transmissions and converters exclusively since 1998. That's 20 years. BTE has quite literally powered every race, every championship, every round that I've won for my entire adult life. My point, they build products that I depend on. BTE builds products that Jed depends on. BTE builds products that you can depend on. Whether it's a complete top dragster or, or top sportsman power glide transmission, a torque converter designed for your specific combination, or any transmission component or bolt-on item, the folks at BTE and Memphis Performance have what you need to succeed in today's ultra-competitive world of sportsman drag racing. Shop online at BTE Racing. The fourth annual ThisIsBracketRacing.com off-season practice tree challenge will kick off on Monday, February 18th. What is the challenge? It's a free month-long program in which myself and my co-instructors within This Is Bracket Racing Elite, that's two-time world champion Kevin Brannon and five-time world champion Justin Lamb, we share our own practice exercises and routines on a daily basis every single weekday for four weeks. Within it, we challenge racers within the program to participate and share their results with the group every single day. I'm confident that we can teach you something new. Along the way, we'll all get a little bit better and we'll have some fun at the same time. To join the off-season practice tree challenge, which again is 100% free, simply visit thisisbracketracing.com slash practice and sign up today. Enrollment in This Is Bracket Racing Elite is now open. You've heard me discuss, or at least reference, This Is Bracket Racing Elite. It is the premier offering of our website, thisisbracketracing.com. Elite is a membership community designed specifically to help you get from where you are today as a racer to who you want to be as a racer. Led by knowledgeable professionals, Justin Lamb and myself are longtime instructors and we bring in a host of guests, racers that you know, racers that you respect, led by knowledgeable instructors and surrounded by supportive peers that are ultimately striving for the same goal in their own unique way. The truth is at each event, there are a hundred plus entries, there's one winner. At the end of each season, there's one champion. That feeling, not so much the money, not so much the trophy, that feeling of achievement, that sense of accomplishment, that tip of the cap from your peers, that's why we do this. You can dream of that feeling all you want, or you can take action, take steps toward becoming that racer. If you're ready to take the first step, this is Bracket Racing Elite is for you. Enrollment is open now for a limited time. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite before we close the doors again on December the 8th. <laughs>